0: Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to The Corbett Report. I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you from the currently rainy climes climbs of Western Japan in April of 2023. And uh, this is an edition of the Flashback Series, where we dip into The Corbett Report archives for relevant, timely, evergreen material. And this week, we're going to take our cue from my most recent edition of Questions for Corbett, as I record this, still up on the front page of CorbettReport.com, although... It may not be by the time you're watching this. At any rate, it is in the archives there in the questions for Corbett category. You can navigate to that directly, or it might be on the front page by the time you're watching this. But at any rate, do you have the JFK Secret Society speech in which I am, I guess I'm pleased to note that I have had a lot of feedback from a lot of people who were surprised, very surprised to hear what that JFK Secret Society speech was actually about. Way, whoa, someone was lying to me. Yes, indeed. So I, I guess it's a good thing that people are learning about those lies, although it is disturbing that so few people had actually bothered to look for the source of that speech, and that is an important a reminder to us all. So in the spirit of opening the JFK Pandora box, and what was that really about, I have, of course, as listeners will know, I've often been fascinated by the the obvious, I think, smoking gun of the JFK assassination, not the literal smoking gun, but the the big gaping hole in that story, the Lee Harvey Oswald, who came out of nowhere to waltz across and defect to Soviet Union and back with his Atsugi Air Force Base secrets and everything. Ah, oh, whatever. What was that about? Oh, he was just some nut. <laughs> Lone nut, right? Uh, that's always been a ridiculous part of the story. So I have done some work on that in the past. And I uh, assume that given my recent broaching of the JFK subject, someone brought up some of my recent... Uh, my distant past work on this subject, including episode 287, Meet Lee Harvey Oswald, Cheap Dip Patsy. But this kind Samaritan was good enough to note that the BitChute version of this video is not playing. In fact, I found a lot of BitChute videos are not playing at the moment. BitChute does this because BitChute uh, has not decentralized like it said it was going to. So it is uh, struggling to be able to provide some of these old videos. Now, this video in particular was taken down from YouTube because of some claim by some clip or whatever that was played in here, which means that it never got taken down to be populated to my Odyssey channel when that got taken up, and then Matthew Rayner of Content Safe was scraping from the Odyssey channel to populate to Rumble and Rockfin and Archive. So this video is really only on this page, and the bit shoot doesn't work, and (laughs) DTube hasn't worked in a long time. The only thing that works is download the MP4. Well, guess what? Download the MP4 does work, and if you click on that, you can get the MP4 video of this video that we're about to watch. Uh, it takes a while to load because it's loading from my servers, but you can, of course, always download the file directly, and that way you don't have to sit there waiting for it to buffer. You just download it to your hard drive. That is the 360p version of this video. For people who don't know, that's a smaller resolution than what you're probably used to. But at any rate, it is there for download, and you can watch it that way. But in the interest of bringing up the JFK assassination and talking about important material, why don't we flash back to this episode? I'm going to put up the 720p... Full resolution uh, quality version of this. So it will be up in the archives once again and available. So thank you to the Good Samaritan for letting me know that this video is only slightly playable. Well, here it is in all its formats. I think there's a lot of important information in here. There's a complete transcript, of course, as always, with links to everything that I'm talking about in this episode. So please do make use of this material. That's what it's for. Having said that, enjoy the podcast.
1: You're listening to The Corbett Report. Report
2: CorbettReport.com
0: Lee Harvey Oswald. The truth about what happened with JFK begins where the myth of Lee Harvey Oswald ends. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Go directly to jail. And die. There is Lee. He's been shot. He's been shot. Lee Oswald has
3: been shot.
0: So, who was Lee Harvey Oswald? Well, it depends who you want to believe. You can take him at face value.
4: I, uh, I don't know what this is all about. I'm just a black guy. No, the idea keep the there, right? sir, I didn't. People keep asking me Sir?
1: you shoot the president?
4: I work in that building. Were you
1: in the building at the time?
4: Naturally, if I work in that building, yes, back, sir.
1: Back up, man! Did you Come shoot on, the man.
4: president? No, they're taking me in because of the, because the of fact that I live right? in the Soviet I'm just a patsy.
2: Shoot
0: Or you can listen to the same people who sold you the Gulf of Tonkin, incubator babies and WMDs in Iraq, Jessica Lynch, and a million other lies.
5: Among that crowd was a man named Oswald, a man who all his life had stood a little apart from society. He had served in the Marines, then suddenly gone to Russia, defected, then changed his mind. With financial assistance from the American embassy, he returned 32 months later with a Russian wife, Marina. He had trouble getting a job and got involved in a pro-Castro movement in New Orleans. Last November, Oswald was working in Dallas, in a building beneath which the presidential motorcade was to pass. What was Oswald's background?
0: Few people really knew. Yes, that's Dan Rather. Yes, the same Dan Rather who rose to prominence for his reporting on the ground in Dallas during those hectic few days surrounding the assassination of Kennedy, the capture of Oswald, Oswald's own death. The same Dan Rather who as one of the first and only people in the world to see the now-infamous Zapruder film before it was locked up by skull-and-bones CIA asset Henry Luce's time-life for 12 years and hidden away from the public, used that occasion to rush back to the studio so he could lie about it on air.
6: A second shot, the third total shot, hit
7: the president's head. His head could be seen to move violently forward.
0: And that was the American public's perception of the murder of their president for over a decade until they actually had the chance to see it with their own eyes, presented courtesy of none other than Geraldo Rivera.
3: I'm telling you right straight out that if you are at all sensitive, uh, if you're at all queasy, uh, then don't watch this film. Just put on the, uh, the late-night movie, uh, because this is uh, very heavy. It's the film shot by the Dallas dress manufacturer Abraham uh, Zapruda, Uh, And it's the execution of President Kennedy. And uh, Bob and Dick, would you please narrate what we're seeing as we show this film? The President is waving to the crowd here. And Jacqueline Kennedy, of course, is sitting alongside him in the open car. Right, this is from Orville Nix's film. This this is originally eight millimeter footage. And they're heading now toward Elm Street. They're on Houston Street now. They're gonna make a left-hand turn. It's on the corner where they're going to make the turn there that the book depository was. Now, this is the Zapruder film. Okay, so the cars are coming along now into Dealey Plaza? Yes, these are the lead motorcycles of the motorcade. All right, now, with the president and Mrs. Kennedy is also Governor Connolly. Right. right. Now, before he goes behind the sign, the president is waving to the crowd. When he comes out from behind the sign, he is shot, and then Governor Connolly is shot. He's already been hit? He's already been hit. And now? And at the bottom of the screen, the headshot. shot. That's the shot that blew up his head. It's the most horrifying thing I've ever seen in the movies. Now the Warren Commission said that all of the shots were fired from behind by Lee Harvey Oswald, a lone assassin, firing at the President, and as you can see, clearly, the head is thrown violently backwards. Con- completely consistent with the shot from the front, right. Now this is an extreme blow-up of just the President from the film. All right. Coming out behind the sign, he shot. He's hit from, he's the, hit here. from the front, too. From, from the front. front. Now, Jackie doesn't realize what's happened yet. She goes to his aid. And now, he's hit. Again, the violent backward motion, totally consistent with 80% of the witnesses, which said the shot came from the grassy knoll in front and to the right.
1: It's interesting to note how many people
4: is running towards where most folks thought the shots came from.
3: The head goes backwards in the next film uh, from the other side of the street. Oh, God, that's
0: awful. That's the most upsetting thing I've ever seen. We'll talk about it in a minute. Upsetting. Is the word upsetting adequate to the task, Geraldo? Horrifying, perhaps. There, on live TV, the public witnessed not just the grisly death of the president, but with their own eyes they saw how an entire web of lies had been spun around JFK's death by a spider more insidious than any arachnid not his head could be seen to move violently forward but
8: this is the key shot president going back and to his left shot from the front and right totally inconsistent with a shot from the depository again back back and to the left back and to the left back, and to the left.
0: But why? Why the lie? Why the rush to capture, kill, and posthumously indict this man, Lee Harvey Oswald? And if he wasn't who they said he was, then who was he really? In order to sort through any pile of manure, let alone one that has been piled high for 50 years, you have to get your hands dirty. So let's examine the manure that we are expected to swallow surrounding the official mythos of Oswald the Wizard of Dealey with his magic bullets. Lee Harvey Oswald was born on October the 18th, 1939
6: in New Orleans, Louisiana. His father had died two months before. Lee wrote of himself that he was the son of an insurance agent whose early death left a far mean streak of independence brought on by neglect.
9: My mother constantly told us that we were You know a burden to her and very early on he learned that
6: uh, he wasn't wanted Lee and his mother moved constantly by the age of 13 he had attended seven different schools he was often a truant as a teenager he lived in New York City where he had no friends sometimes he spent days riding the subways alone His interest in communism began when he was handed a flyer about the case of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, communist sympathizers executed as spies for the Soviet Union. By 16, he had dropped out of school and was calling himself a Marxist.
9: He wanted the attention by being unique. And if the worst of the world had been a Marxist, he would have been American.
6: Lee's outspoken support of communism did not prevent him from joining the Marine Corps at 17. He did it to get away from his mother. He didn't hide his infatuation with communism, even though it turned other marines against him. He began to teach himself Russian. He praised Cuba's new communist leader, Fidel Castro.
9: When he was in the Marine Corps, he was going the opposite direction from the rest of the troops. He wanted to be different from the crowd, stand out from the crowd, and whatever it took, he was willing to do it.
6: Oswald learned to shoot in the marines. He reached the grade of sharpshooter. He was able to fire rapidly, with accuracy, at a target 200 yards away. He stayed in the Marines for just under three years, and nine days after being discharged, he was on his way to the Soviet Union, where he intended to defect. He arrived in Moscow on a tourist visa on October the 16th, 1959.
2: I heard from a friend in the American Embassy that there was a young defector staying in my hotel. Everything about him spelt loneliness and aloneness.
6: Priscilla MacMillan, who would later become Oswald's biographer, met him in Moscow where she was working as a journalist.
2: He told me he wanted to defect because there were a lot of things in the United States which he did not like, particularly capitalism and racial discrimination. He said he was a Marxist, and this was it, the communist paradise.
6: It was a rare American who thought the Soviet Union was paradise. The New York Times reported on Oswald's desire to stay in the Soviet Union, but the Russians were skeptical of any would-be defector, especially one barely 20 years old.
1: The initial reaction to any foreigner in the old USSR was to view them as CIA or some other intelligence agents. But after some uh, research, we found out that uh, he was not good for the CIA. So we thought maybe we'll turn him into a Soviet agent eventually, but he was no good either.
6: (laughs) Six days after he got to Moscow, the Russians decided they didn't want him and told him to leave.
1: Oswald, to us, looked like a misfit, an unhappy man the man who did not know what to do, the man who was looking for something and he did not know himself what he was looking for.
6: But the Soviets underestimated Oswald's determination and his flair for the dramatic. When Oswald heard he'd been rejected, he went to his hotel room and slit his wrist.
2: He made a hysterical gesture, probably didn't want to kill himself really, but he wanted to force them to let him stay and, believe it or not, he succeeded he blackmailed them as he did everybody
6: the Soviet authorities caved in and allowed Oswald to settle in the city of Minsk where he was given an apartment and a job in a factory Oswald stood out in Minsk as an American he was different he enjoyed people's curiosity he met and married a Russian girl Marina they had a child but they lived the life of ordinary workers and the bare facts of Oswald's life clashed with the image he had of himself he was without education without skills but seething with ambition people who met him throughout his life were often startled by it
8: he was so extremely fixed on making an impression with his life enormously ambitious ambitious to achieve something beyond the normal.
6: But in June 1962, disappointed in Russia, Lee and Marina left the Soviet Union and headed for Dallas, Texas. Lee was convinced that when they arrived at Love Field, he'd be greeted by curious reporters.
9: One of the first things he says, what, no reporters? He seemed definitely disappointed. He had his notes, how he was going to answer the reporters or why this and why that, why he went to Russia and why he came back. But there was nobody to talk to.
6: Home again in the United States, Oswald was a man of no importance to anyone but himself. He found work demeaning. He had very little money. He had no deep connections to other people except Marina. And he was physically abusing her. In january nineteen sixty three, using an alias, A Hydell, Oswald ordered a revolver, a Smith and Wesson thirty eight, the gun that killed Officer Tippett. In March he ordered a rifle, using the same alias, a Mannlicher Carcano six point five millimeter, the gun that killed John Kennedy. He asked Marina to take his photograph. When I first met him and brought him over to the house, The first thing he showed me was a picture of himself holding a rifle and i could see he was proud of that picture i had the strong impression that it was an icon of himself that he liked michael and ruth Payne showed kindness to lee and marina ruth and marina spoke russian together and became friends lee kept his distance
2: he had these fantasies about who he was and what he could do and that nobody was really paying attention or or noticing or feeling that he was important.
6: He'd been spending his life, the latter half of his life, trying to be a revolutionary, trying to have an effect, trying to be important, make a mark on the world. No one knows the exact moment that Lee Oswald decided to become a political assassin. But in April 1963,
0: he was ready to be one. So how can we unlock this myth? The keys to this story are all right in front of our face, if only we'll recognize them.
7: Well, Oswald is a pretty interesting fellow. He's not nearly the one dimensional character that the Warren Commission has painted him to be. He was in the Marine Corps, and did very well. He had a high security clearance. He was stationed over at at Sugi. He was a radar operator. In fact, he was one of the guys that would track the U-2 flights over Russia. So it's not like he was the perennial loser that uh, we, we tend to have this image of him
5: now. Some of the key pieces of the Oswald puzzle lie not in Dallas, but down in New Orleans, where he spent significant periods of his life. In an unbroadcast interview with a local radio and television station only months before the assassination, Oswald spoke about his life.
4: I was born in New Orleans in 1939. Uh, for a short length of time during my childhood, I lived in Texas and in New York. Uh, during my junior high school days, I attended Beauregard Junior High School. I attended that school for two years. Uh, Then I went to Warren Eastern High School, and I attended that uh, school for over a year. Then my family and I moved to Texas, and uh, I continued my schooling there. Uh, Then I entered the United States Marine Corps in 1956. Uh, I spent three years in the United States Marine Corps, starting out as a private, working my way up through the ranks uh, to the uh, position of Buck Sergeant. And uh, I served honorably, having been discharged
7: he had an honorable discharge uh... and then just a few weeks later wound up in russia saying that he was going to renounce his american citizenship Uh, and it's interesting that after he had supposedly said that he was given a dishonorable discharge from the marine corps it's fascinating that when he did go over to russia and was introduced to the woman who later became his wife his russian was so good that she thought he was a russian so we suspect that he was trained and it is known that the uh... military in this country had uh... training programs for defectors
5: and we suspect oswald was in that program we don't know it but we suspect it a glimpse into his true role in russia may have been revealed by the hesitant way in which he described his relationship with the american embassy there
4: i worked in russia uh... i was under uh... the protection of the uh, of the uh, i would that is i was not under the protection of the uh... american government But that is i was a uh, at all times uh... considered an american citizen uh... at no time as i say was i uh, did i renounce my citizenship or attempt to renounce my citizenship and at no time was i out of contact or uh... with the uh... american embassy it's quite possible that
7: his mission in russia was sponsored by the u.s state department which did participate in some fake uh... defector programs back in those days it's entirely possible and it certainly would fit with the kind of person we Think Lee Harvey Oswald was
5: one person with no illusions about Oswald's role launched his own investigation into the Kennedy assassination in 1967 the former district attorney of New Orleans judge Jim
1: Garrison he was employed by the Central Intelligence Agency and it was obviously drawn into a scapegoat situation and made to believe ultimately that he was penetrating the assassination and then when the time came They took the scapegoat, the man who thought he was working for the United States government, and killed him real quick. And then the machinery, disinformation machinery started turning, and they started making a villain out of a
0: man who genuinely was probably a hero. A hero? Maybe not exactly. But the lone assassin of the president? Certainly not. The term for it in intelligence circles is sheep-dipping. It's when a military or intelligence asset is given a civilian cover to continue their work for the government after their discharge in a way that can't be traced back to the original agency. It explains why Timothy McVeigh wrote letters to his sister claiming he had been selected for an elite special forces unit at Fort Bragg that participated in government-sanctioned assassinations and drug running shortly before leaving the service and beginning his transformation from ultra-successful Bronze Star Army hero into the monster of the Oklahoma City bombing. It also explains how Lee Harvey Oswald, a dirt-poor Marine Corps runt from Louisiana, managed to learn fluent Russian, get discharged from the Marines, fly to Europe with money he didn't have, stay at the most luxurious hotels along the way, and waltz into the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War. It also explains why the U.S. Embassy loaned him money to come back to the States after meeting and marrying his Russian wife, and even gave him a military hop home. Oswald was a sheep-dipped asset, likely working for the CIA in the fake defector scheme they had to run spies into the Soviet Union in the 1950s. This program has been documented since the time of the House Select Committee on Assassinations in the 1970s, which uncovered the internal CIA documents confirming the program. JFK researcher Lisa Pease explains.
10: He gets a flight to Europe, and the War Commission tries to track how he pays for it. Well, he doesn't have any money to pay for this long flight that goes you know through Switzerland and then on to Finland and and uh, they, they never could explain you know which flights he took how he paid for it and the fact that he went to Finland to get in the Soviet Union is also significant because it's one of the few places where you can get in very quickly. A lot of times it takes weeks to get a, a pass get into Russia at that point in time, especially for a so called civilian. You can't just like walk up to the border, show a passport, and walk through. A highly closed society. But in Finland, Oswald goes there, he stays at what, what is the equivalent of, like, the Woods Carlton. So this poor kid with no money, you know, somehow gets a flight and ends up at, like, a five-star hotel <laughs> and then gets into the Soviet Union the very next day. I mean, all of these circumstances make no sense if he's who the war report, say, he is. But they make perfect sense if he's an intelligence agent on assignment. And... Um, Again, as as far as the various levels of intelligence agents, one of the things that CIA people did was run singleton operations, meaning you weren't part of a team, you weren't part of a group. Some CIA agent basically ran you on a personal basis, kind of out of their back pocket. And another CIA person who was in that category Jerry Patrick Hemming, who for the most part I don't consider very credible, but I do think he was credible on this point. He did say that uh, James Jesus Angleton, the head of the CIA's counterintelligence for 25 years, was running singleton operations into the Soviet Union. All right. We also know the CIA at that time was running a false defector program. Because again, I mean, just on the face of it, who wants to defect from free America to closed society, dictatorship? you know, communist KGB, you know, uh, U.S.S.R. at that point in time. No one, no one in their right mind would choose to leave the free country of America to go live in a closed society. It just doesn't happen. And the Soviets knew that. So every time one of these defectors arrived, the Soviets would talk to them, figure they were CIA spooks, try and get whatever information they could out of them, and eventually send them back. Um... Oswald was kind of in the middle of a pack of American so-called defectors who went over there. And again, the War Commission just tells us flat out he defected. John Newman, on the other hand, a former intelligence analyst, went through the actual files every single on Oswald, and he pointed out to the rest of us, he's like, hey, Oswald never actually defected. He would have had to sign this, he would have had to do that, and he specifically didn't. So he claimed to defect, but he didn't really defect. He never gave up his U.S. citizenship. And then I noticed, even in the Warren Commission documents, how did he get back from the Soviet Union? He came back on a military hop. So again, we have this guy who supposedly, totally, you know, he well, probably worked on the base where the U2 flights were flying, he had top secret information goes to the Soviet Union, says he's going to defect, and yet he's still welcomed back to America not only with open arms but on a military flight. He gets alone from the State Department when he gets back? (laughs) I mean, it's it's just it's incredible on the face of it if the official story is true. But again, if he's an intelligence agent, none of this is crazy. All of this makes perfect sense.
0: Oswald's legend had been carefully established, a trail of cookie crumbs that led to the Soviet Union and to the activities of some highly dubious pro-Castro Cuban groups. (laughs)
5: Six months before the assassination, Oswald had taken a mundane job with the Riley Coffee Company. But it seems his real activities were centered a few blocks away. From a small office on the corner of Lafayette and Camp Street, Oswald managed a local chapter of the pro Castro Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Operating from an adjoining office was a sinister figure named Guy Bannister.
1: But Guy Bannister. It's difficult to say much about him because he always stood in the shadows and pushed someone else to the front. He was a strongly disciplined man, perhaps the outgrowth of his many years as a special agent in charge of the Chicago office of the FBI. But he was a key man in the assassination. And that's clear from the fact that Oswald's sheep dipping, his... his... His being portrayed as a communist was done out of Guy Bannister's office. So he was sheeped up for months as a communist by giving literature. Lee, hand this out today. This is your assignment. I came across the fact that Oswald, a, a private in the Marines, had taken a, a Russian examination. And I knew the privates did not take Russian examinations unless they were connected with intelligence. So that caused me to be curious about 544 Camp, which was the address stamped on one circular that they gave out one time before obviously Bannister told them leave no more addresses. It turned out that was a side address of Guy Bannister's private detective agency. Well I went down there to look at it and I found myself not merely outside of Guy Bannister's office but across the street from Naval Intelligence across the street from Secret Service. Around the corner it was the Crescent City garage, the garage for the intelligence community. And then two doors away, the Riley Coffee Company. I used to be in the FBI. I knew people in naval intelligence, and they were either across the street, around the corner. The whole intelligence community was there. And right in the middle of it was Guy Bannister having Oswald sheep dip as a communist.
3: You're a
4: Marxist? Well, I have uh, studied Marxist philosophy, yes, sir, and also other philosophers.
7: But are you a Marxist? I think you did admit on an earlier radio interview that you, uh, that you
4: consider yourself a Marxist. Well, I would very definitely say that I, uh, I uh, am a Marxist. That is correct. But I, that does not mean, however, that I'm a, a uh, communist. What is the difference between the two? Well, there's a great deal of difference. Such, several uh, American parties in several countries are based on Marxism, such as Ghana. Uh, Ghana. Uh, certain countries have uh, characteristics uh, of a socialist system, such as Great Britain, with its uh, socialized medicine. Uh, These, then, are the differences between an outright Communist country and countries which adhere to leftist or Marxist uh, uh, principles.
1: In your work with the Fair
4: Play for Cuba committee, uh, what are you advocating? We advocate restoration of diplomatic trade and tourist relations with Cuba.
0: So all that was needed once the president had been lured into the killing grounds and the turkey shoot was over was to round up their man.
11: So they called the cops. All right, now here's the the president of the United States has been assassinated in their town. One of their own police officers has been shot several blocks away. And they get a call at the dispatcher to say that somebody sneaked in the theater without buying a ticket. And on the basis of that, they rush 15 squad cars, district attorneys, and 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 county sheriffs and even men claiming to be CIA and they all surround the Texas Theater. And so they go in, and they uh, take Johnny Brewer, and picture this. Here's a theater that holds 900 people, and there's only about 20 people in it, scattered all around. They turn on the house lights, but the movie's still running. Uh They walk down. They get on the stage. Brewer's up there with them. They're saying, do you see the guy that slipped in? He looks around, spots somebody back at the back. Uh, and says, I think that's him back there. Now, what do you think they'd do then? they go rush back, grab the guy, right? Nope, they didn't do that. They started working their way back each aisle. Sir, excuse me, sir, stand up, you know, come around here, let's see some ID. And they just keep working their way back towards the back of the theater, giving Oswald every opportunity to make a run for it. And I think the plan was they're going to shoot him trying to escape, and then it's yeah, all right there. Yeah, there you go. There you okay? go. Okay? except uh, uh-huh. except when uh, and the cops that were in on it and ready to shoot him, it got fouled up because Officer McDonald showed up, and I don't think he was part of the plot. He just showed up, and he goes up there, and he's the first one to approach Oswald. And he said, Oswald said, well, it's all over now, or something like that. stood up and pulled this thirty-eight pistol from his belt, and uh, McDonald said he heard the gun snap. OK, as he held it against his midriff. And this was all told to the Associated Press and was published the next day. All right. And uh, McDonald said he heard the gun snap and he thought, oh, my God, am I lucky, you know, that it didn't go off. And so at this time, the several of them jump on Oswald and they haul him out the front door of the.
0: the uh, gun the misfired.
11: Station. The gun misfired.
0: Then it was just a question of finishing off the job. There is Lee.
3: He's been shot. He's been shot. Lee Oswald has been shot. There's a man with a gun.
11: Absolute panic.
0: All courtesy of another man claiming to be a patsy. The
9: world will never know the true facts
4: of what occurred, my motives, people that had so much to gain and, and have such a material motive
7: for putting me in a position I'm in, we'll never let the true facts come to the to the
0: world. But when we talk about Lee Harvey Oswald, the question has to be raised, do we know who we're talking about? Are we even talking about one man?
11: They grab Oswald and they haul him out the front door of the school book depository, where a crowd gathered, and there are all kinds of photographs of him hauling Oswald out of the theater, mm-hmm. and they put him in a squad car and they head for town. Mm-hmm. This would have been about one forty, 140, one forty-five. Mm-hmm. Okay? Uh, meanwhile, Bernard O'Hare, who had the hobby store next to the theater, he said he heard the commotion, told me he heard the commotion, went out, stood at the edge of the crowd, see what was going on, and we have a photograph of him standing in the crowd in front of the school depository. And then he said, but he couldn't see anything much, so he went back in his store and walked through and went back into the alleyway. Uh, in the back, and he said there were police cars lined up all down the alleyway, and as he walked a few feet towards the Texas Theater, he saw the back door of the Texas Theater slam open, and these cops were dragging out a young, slender, white guy, okay, that looked like he'd been in a fight, and they hustled him around and threw him in a squad car, and they took off for town. And for all the years until I talked to him, O'Hare had believed he saw the arrest of Lee Harvey Oswald because he heard he was arrested at the theater and hauled out, and he didn't huh. pay much more uh-huh. attention to it. Uh-huh. And when I showed him the pictures of him bringing Oswald out the front of the theater, he asked the $64,000 question. He said, well, then who did I see? Yeah. getting <laughs> brought out the rear of the Texas theater. So see, there was just, there's something else going on there. They led, somebody led the cops to the Texas theater yeah. Went in the balcony, and I have two Dallas arrest reports, two separate ones, that uh-huh. both say that the suspect was arrested in the balcony of the Texas Theater. I seem to remember hearing that. Yeah, no, he was arrested on the ground floor. Mm -hmm. The lookalike was arrested in the balcony. The guy Mm -hmm. that took out the back door was arrested Mm -hmm. in the balcony. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm
10: -hmm. And there is evidence, of course, that LBJ knew that something was wrong with the whole Oswald story, because there's that conversation uh, that's transcribed between him and Hoover, where they talk about somebody impersonating Oswald down in... Mexico City, a event that happened a month before the assassination, that's also really interesting. Because <laughs> it looks like, again, the CIA was setting up... Uh, supposedly, the CIA, you know, somebody, either Oswald or somebody who pretends to be Oswald, goes to the Soviet embassy and the Cuban embassy in Mexico City a month before the assassination. And it says they want to go get into Cuba. Can I get a visa to Cuba? Uh, the Cubans say no, but try the Russians, or or I forget which, which way it went, or the Russians say no, but try the Cubans, and ostensibly goes to both em- embassies and is denied on both counts. We know for a fact that some of those conversations had to be false, because, again, John Newman traced who was working at the embassy, which days, what hours they were open, when they were closed, and at least one of the conversations happened when no one was around. There was actually a big event that day, and everybody was out somewhere else. <laughs> So one of the conversations was entirely fictitious. The problem at the Cuban embassy is that the Cuban consul, who he talked to, a man named Askew, um, described him as a short, blonde guy, not the guy that we saw in Dallas, you know, not a dark-haired guy. And so, you know, again, begging the question of who, who was there posing as Oswald and why.
8: Three weeks after I buried uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, the Secret Service came to me and they said, Paul, did you see any scars such as the scars on his wrists where he was supposed to have tried to commit suicide in Russia? And, and I said, of course, I, I wasn't looking for the likes of this and really in my own mind did not uh, feel as though uh, I remembered uh, much about this but didn't remember seeing any marks of that kind and uh, the secret service agent told me at that time well paul we just don't know who we have out there in that grave
5: that mystery did not end with oswald's burial lingering doubts about the identity of the person buried at rose hill cemetery fort worth prompted oswald's widow marina to have his body exhumed in
8: 1981 being of Russian background and not truly trusting uh, the American, she often wondered if his body was really there. So, when it came the opportunity to possibly uh, bring his body to the surface, she was most interested to in know is his body really there? Had somebody taken his body from the grave after the burial had been made? Well, that was her motive, partly. And then, too, I think she was interested to make sure that this was really Lee Harvey Oswald that was still there in that grave. At the time uh, of the uh, 63 of the burial uh, time, I put Lee Harvey Oswald in a steel-reinforced concrete vault. That vault was hermetically sealed. Uh, The vault is guaranteed not to break, crack, or go to pieces. It's heavy concrete with steel in it, with an asphalt lining. And uh, when I opened the grave in 81 and found that that vault had been broken, and the bottom of the vault was the part that was broken, the top was still uh, intact, Uh, I noticed at that time that the casket had been disturbed. I questioned uh, in my own mind what had been going on. When I opened that casket the first time, I sent my wife, Virginia, to Marina to tell her, yes, there is a body in that grave, because that was her concern. And uh, then we did go to Baylor. Uh, There was an examination by a medical uh, person who was a forensic pathologist. And uh, she determined that, yes, these were the teeth of Lee Harvey Oswald, but it took two years for her to make that determination before the report was actually done.
2: Uh, The findings of the team are as follows. We independently and as a team have concluded beyond any doubt, and I mean beyond any doubt, that the individual buried under the name of Lee Harvey Oswald in Rose Hill Cemetery is in fact Lee Harvey Oswald. At this point in time, we hope that this puts the matter to rest without any further uh, speculation being raised as to the identity of the individual at Rose Hill.
5: Oswald's dental record was used to confirm the identity of the exhumed body. But once again, the official version does not tell the whole story. Paul Grudy, an experienced mortician, made one vital observation that confounds their findings. He speaks about it here for the first time.
8: Of course, I was uh, the one that uh, had to handle the body in the morgue at Baylor. And uh, as we removed the body from the casket or uh, at least uh, worked with the body, I could recognize that uh, uh, this clothing was the clothing that I had put on that body. And yet, when I saw the head, of this body uh, and it was removed from the casket and removed from the body in order that they might x-ray it and take pictures. Um, I could see that there was no autopsy. On that head when a, an autopsy is done and the skull is uh, cut in order to remove the cap uh, in order to remove the brain there is a distinctive line of where all the fissures and all of the skull has been parted now it's going to cause a bit of a of a mark uh, no matter what you try and do it's going to show and uh, knowing that I handled the body originally and there was an autopsy on that head and now to see that there was no autopsy on the head made it in my mind pretty clear that something had transpired that had caused this and uh, I feel as though someone had gone to the cemetery uh, off hours had uh, taken a uh, the head of really of Lee Harvey Oswald that now was dead uh, how he got that way i don't know but at least it was the head and uh, had brought the vault to the surface as best they could being a, a heavy item as it is a tripod uh lifting that uh, body uh, lifting the body and the vault out of the grave in the process the bottom of the vault fell uh breaking the vault Uh, causing the casket to to deteriorate to a degree. Then, of course, uh, removed the head of the one that was there that had been autopsied and put this head in its place so that we would find the teeth of Lee Harvey Oswald. That's my theory, this is what I think happened. Uh, Whoever caused that was the same uh, faction that caused the assassination in the first place, but uh, in my mind, uh, a cover-up had taken place.
0: Maybe it's too late. Maybe we'll never find the real Lee Harvey Oswald underneath the decades of manure that have been piled on top of his story. But there is one thing of which we can be certain. The rush to frame, capture, kill, and convict in the court of public opinion this alleged disgruntled loner only makes sense as a distractionary measure. To keep the public focused on the endless minutiae of the how instead of the real question, the transgressive question. The question that really matters. Why?
12: Anyway, after I came back, I asked myself, Why was I, the Chief of Special Ops, selected to travel to the South Pole at that time to do a job that any number of others could have done? And I wondered if it could have been because one of my routine duties, if I had been in Washington, would have been to arrange for additional security in Texas, so I decided to check it out. And sure enough, I found out that someone had told the 112th Military Intelligence Group at 4th Army Headquarters at Fort Sam Houston to stand down that day over the protest of the unit commander. Colonel Wright, I believe it's a mistake. This is significant because it is standard operating procedure, especially in a known hostile city like Dallas, to supplement the Secret Service. I mean, even if we had not allowed the bubble top to be removed from the limousine, we would have placed at least 100 to 200 agents on the sidewalk without question. I mean, only a month ago, Dallas UN Ambassador Adlai Stevenson stood on and hit. There had already been several attempts on De Gaulle's life in France. We would have arrived days ahead of time, studied the route, checked all the buildings, never would have allowed all those wide open empty windows overlooking Dealing. never. We'd have had our own snipers covering the area. The minute a window went up, they'd have been on the radio. We'd have been watching the crowd, packages rolled up, newspapers, code over and up. Never would have let a man open an umbrella along the way. Never would have allowed that limousine to slow down to 10 miles an hour, much less take that unusual curve at Houston and Elm. You would have felt an army presence in the streets that day. None of this happened. It was a violation of the most basic protection codes we have, and it is the best indication of a massive plot in Dallas. Now, who could have best done this? Black ops, Mr. Garrison. People in my business, people like my superior officer, could have called Colonel Reich and said, look, we have another unit coming from so-and-so, providing security. You'll stand down. I mean, that day, in fact, there were some individual Army intelligence people in Dallas. I'm still trying to figure out who and why. But they weren't protecting Client and, of course, Oswald. Army intel had a Harvey Lee Oswald on file. All those files had been destroyed. Many strange things were happening and your Lee Harvey Oswald had nothing to do with them. We had the entire cabinet on a trip to the Far East. We had one third of a combat division returning from Germany in the air above the United States at the time of the shooting. At 12.34 p.m. the entire telephone system went on in Washington for a solid hour. And on the plane back to Washington, word was radioed from the White House situations room to Lyndon Johnson that one individual performed the assassination. That sound like a bunch of coincidences to you, Mr. Garrison? No. Not for one moment. The cabinet was out of the country to get their perceptions out of the way. Troops were in the air for possible riot control. The telephones didn't work to get the wrong stories from spreading if anything went wrong with the plan. Nothing was left to chance. He could not be allowed to escape alive. Well, I never thought things were the same after that. Vietnam started for real. It was an air of, I don't know, make-believe in the Pentagon and CIA. Those of us who'd been in secret ops since the beginning knew the Warren Commission was fiction. But there was something... something deeper, uglier. I knew Alan Dulles very well. I'd briefed him many a time in his house. But for the life of me, I still can't figure out why he was appointed to investigate Kennedy's death, the man who had fired him. Dallas, by the way, was General Wyatt's benefactor. I got out in 64, resigned my commission.
11: I never realized Kennedy was so dangerous to the establishment.
12: Is that why? Well, that's a real question, isn't it? Why? The how and the who is just scenery for the public. Oswald, Ruby, Cuba, the Mafia. Keeps him guessing like some kind of parlor game prevents him from asking the most important question, why? Why was Kennedy killed? Who benefited? Who has the power to cover it up? Who?
0: Fifty years ago this month, there was a coup d'etat in America. A coup that placed the shadow government of the national security state, born in 1947 and already controlling more and more of the apparatus of government, firmly in the seat of power in America. It was a coup that occurred in broad daylight. Everyone saw it, and no one can speak its name. That is the ultimate coup. Perhaps we will never know who Lee Harvey Oswald was, what he knew, whether in fact he was more a character than a man, a character with more than one actor. But in the final conclusion, we have no reason to doubt that he did tell the truth after all, there in the ominous hours before his death.
4: I uh, I don't know what this is all about. I'm the, the president? black no, so I didn't. How'd keep the not
2: that people you get me Sir, shoot
4: the I work in that building. Were you in the building at the time? Naturally, if I work in that building, yes, sir. Back, back up, man. Did you Come shoot on, the man. President. No, they're taking me in because of the fact that I right. live in it. I'm Did just you a patsy. President.
3: He's been shot. He's been shot. Lee Oswald has been shot. There's a man with a gun. It's absolute pass.